Jeffrey Epstein was sort of an enigma to the people who knew of him in New York City. He was this handsome, wealthy, single man who hung out with a lot of famous and powerful people and loved to surround himself with the young, beautiful women. But Jeffrey had some nasty demons. This is the story of Jeffrey Epstein and how money and power can buy silence. I'm Reagan Snyder, and this is the story of I'm So Glad You're Here. Jeffrey Epstein was born on January 20th of 1953, and he grew up in New York City's oldest gated community called Seagate. And it was this private community, it was waterfront, and it was located at the far western edge of Coney Island. Seagate is made up of about 850 single-family homes, and it has all sorts of architectural styles, including Mediterranean and Queen Anne, which is like this Victorian-style, cool dollhouse look. The Epstein Hall was just across the street from Knesset Israel, which was Seagate's oldest synagogue. Sounds like a pretty cool neighborhood. I've never been there. But despite that, the Epsteins were middle class, and that's how Jeffrey grew up. His parents were both children of European immigrants, and his dad, Seymour, worked for his father's house wrecking company, and then he worked for New York City's Parks Department as a groundskeeper and a gardener. His mom, Paula, worked full-time as a school aide, and she was known to be a really, really great mom and homemaker. And they had two kids, Jeffrey and his brother, Mark, and they were both very gifted students. They had a special interest in math, and Jeffrey, in particular, loved music. He was a very talented musician, and he learned how to play the piano when he was just five years old. He was such a gifted student that he was able to skip two grades, and in 1969, he graduated high school at just 16 years old. He started college later that year at Cooper Union, but in 1971, he changed colleges, and he began to attend the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences at NYU. That sounds like my personal hell. I don't understand math, and therefore I don't like it, but Jeffrey liked it, but he ended up dropping out of college in 1974. Despite his lack of credentials, Jeffrey became a teacher at the prestigious Dalton School on the Upper East Side of New York in 1974 by lying on his resume. He taught physics and math to teens, but it's alleged that he showed inappropriate behavior towards some of the underage students. He ended up being fired in 1976, and I don't think it was for that, which is a little bit alarming. He was fired for quote-unquote poor performance. But before he was fired, he made a special connection with one of his students' parents. His name was Alan Greenberg, and he was the chairman of an investment banking company called Bear Stearns. Alan knew that Jeffrey was this brilliant math mathematician, and so after he was let go from Dalton, Alan gave Jeffrey a job working as an assistant to a floor trader at Bear Stearns. And Jeffrey did well. He quickly gained status and leverage at the company. He moved up into a role as an options trader, working in the special products division, and then he began advising some of the company's wealthiest clients. And one of these clients was Edgar Bronfman, who is, was the president of Seagram, and Jeffrey advised him on things like tax mitigation strategies. I'm laughing because that's, that's so over my, that just sounds like the worst. Jimmy Kane was the bank CEO, and he was impressed with Jeffrey's ability to communicate with, with wealthy clients, and four years into joining Bear Stearns, he became a limited partner. But a year later, in 1981, Jeffrey was asked to leave the company for violating a Reg D violation. It was an abrupt departure, but he stayed close to Jimmy Kane and Alan Greenberg. He wasn't about to burn those bridges. And he actually remained a client of Bear Stearns until it collapsed in 2008. After leaving Bear Stearns, Jeffrey founded his, old, his own con consulting firm in 1982. It was called the International Assets Group, Inc., also known as IAG. And his company helped clients recover stolen money from fraudulent brokers and lawyers. And one notable client of his was a Spanish actress named Ana Obergon, her father had lost millions of dollars in investments when the Drysdale government securities collapsed because of fraud. 
and Jeffrey helped her get it back. And I'm laying down all these words and all these companies, and I, I couldn't tell you what they are. It's just, it sounds very, very smart and like rich people go there. But that's what Jeffrey's company did. He helped people get stolen money back, pretty much. And then in 1987, he met Stephen Hoffenberg, who was the chairman of Tower Financial Corporation. Stephen hired Jeffrey for his consulting work. He paid him $25,000 a month. And then five years later, Tower Financial Corporation blew up as one of the biggest Ponzi schemes. And if you aren't clear, I know you've heard of what a Ponzi scheme is. If you aren't clear on what exactly it is, it's a form of fraud that lures investors and pays profits to earlier investors with the money that they get from more recent investors. Sounds very stressful. The company's investors ended up losing somewhere around $450 million with this company. And Stephen Hoffenberg, the guy who hired Jeffrey, claimed that not only was Jeffrey involved in the scheme, he was the mastermind behind it all. But that, I don't think, has ever been proven. What do you think? I, I, I believe it. Jeffrey Epstein was scum. He obviously denied this. He left the corporation in 1989, which was three or four years before the Ponzi scheme came to light. He was never charged for his alleged involvement in it. But Hoffenberg was. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. After leaving Tower Financial Corporation in 1989, Jeffrey started his financial management firm, and that was called J. Epstein & Co. He formed this company to cater to society's elite. There were very high qualifications that had to be met in order to be taken on as a client by J. Epstein & Co. And one of these qualifications was that you had to have a net worth of around $1 billion. Not a million, a billion. And because of this, his entire clientele has never been released to public. The only publicly known client of Jeffrey's at J. Epstein & Co. was Leslie Wexner. If you don't know who Les Wexner is, he was the founder of L Brands. He was the owner of Victoria's Secret, The Limited, and Abercrombie and & Fitch. And he's worth $4.1 billion. So Jeffrey's just, he's good at meeting rich people. They met in 1986 through mutual friends. And about a year after they met, Leslie hired Jeffrey to be his financial advisor. He just, he loved Jeffrey Epstein. A year after, after he hired him as his financial advisor, he granted Jeffrey full power of attorney over his affairs. That's a brave, bold move. He was able to borrow money, sign tax returns, and hire people and make acquisitions on Wexner's behalf. And then on top of this, he also promoted Jeffrey to director of the Wexner Foundation. So he was Leslie's right-hand man by this point. He, and through this, Jeffrey made millions thanks to his dude, Les Wexner. And because Mr. Wexner owned Victoria's Secret, this gave Jeffrey the hookup to Victoria's Secret fashion shows. And Jeffrey would pose as a recruiter for Victoria's Secret, who was helping young models in order to have access to them. And I think anyone walking the earth knows by now what Jeffrey Epstein was all about. He was a wealthy sex trafficking pedophile that got away with it for far too long because he was rich and powerful. One incident of him abusing his ties to Les Wexner and the world of Victoria's Secret was in 1997 when he invited a 27-year-old model named Alicia Arden to his Santa Monica hotel room under the guise of discussing her possibly appearing in the Victoria's Secret catalog. So she went to his hotel And he told her that he knew the owner of Victoria's Secret, and he opened up her portfolio, and he said, now let me see you in your bra and underwear. And then he started touching her. He put his hands on her hips and her butt, and she thought he was going to rape or attack her, so she ran out of the hotel room crying, and she went straight to the police, but nothing ever came of it. Fast forward real quick. This is 1997. Fast forward to 2019. Wexner came out and said that he discovered that Jeffrey had stolen over $46 million from him. Could have seen that coming from 1,200 miles away. And so he cut ties with him in 2007, but he never pressed any charges. Jeffrey eventually changed the name of J. Epstein & Co. to the Financial Trust Company, and he based it out of the Virgin Islands, which reduced his federal income tax by 90%. 
In the early 2000s, the company continued to grow. He grew it by working with multiple financing media companies, developing securities and funding and investing in different hedge funds. He also started a nonprofit foundation to donate millions of dollars to numerous institutions, including Harvard University. So he had this great reputation. In 1998, he purchased his infamous private island, Little St. James in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It was the 72-acre property. He bought it at the time for $7.95 million, which is a crap ton of money. But now, today, that doesn't seem like very much for a whole entire island. The island had a main house, three guest cottages, a caretaker's cottage, a private desalination system, and a helipad and a dock. This was back in the 90s. I don't know what it has now. And in the early 90s, lots going down in the 90s. A lot went down in the 90s. Some of you were there. Do you remember? So in the early 90s, Jeffrey met Elaine Maxwell. They met at a party in New York. Elaine was a British socialite. She was very charismatic. She was smart. She was extroverted. And some some people might know who her dad was. He was the publishing tycoon Robert Maxwell. And Robert had ridden, risen from extreme poverty in a Czechoslovak Jewish settlement. Most of his family had been killed in the Holocaust. He became a British Army war hero, and then he went on to become an academic publishing magnate, and then a labor MP, and eventually the owner of the Daily Mirror, which you've probably heard of. It's one of UK's biggest selling newspapers. Elaine was born on Christmas Day in 1961 in France. And she was raised in Headington Hill Hall, which was this large Italian-style mansion in Oxford, England. And although she had everything she could ever want in a material sense, her childhood was majorly marked with emotional neglect, which people know by now carries on through childhood and into adulthood. She studied modern history and languages at Marlborough. I can't say that word. At Marlborough and Oxford University. Marlborough is very hard to say for me. Is that a hard word to say for you? My mouth doesn't want to say that. In January of 1991, her father acquired the New York Daily News. And Elaine was sent off to its headquarters as his representative. And this was her entry into the whole social scene of Manhattan. Jeffrey and Elaine had this romantic relationship for several years in the early 90s. And after that, they remained closely associated. We Nobody really knows the nature of their relationship and what it was. It was very, very weird from where I'm standing. But in more recent years, Jeffrey's household employees said that he referred to her as his quote-unquote main girlfriend or his best friend. But whatever she was, she was definitely his right-hand man. By 1992, Elaine was managing Jeffrey's Palm Beach estate. And I think I think people know this by now, but it's assumed that she took on the role of Jeff of uh, Jeffrey's procurer, which is somebody who hires prostitutes for somebody else uh, by 1994. So just a few years into knowing him. And then it turned into something really, really sinister and illegal. Elaine would recruit young girls, usually middle school and high school aged, to give Jeffrey a massage in exchange for $200. And she would target vulnerable girls. She targeted runaways and girls from broken homes and poor families. And she would scope them out before approaching them to ask questions about themselves. She would work on them. She would groom them. And then she would tell them about Jeffrey. She would claim that he was this great guy. He had lots of money and he could get them anything they wanted, financially or otherwise. And when these girls agreed to give this massage to Jeffrey, the all-powerful being, Elaine would take them back to his house and she would lead them into his massage room. He had this massage room where he would be lying face down on the massage table, but naked. And what started, what would start as a normal massage would turn into Jeffrey sexually assaulting these girls before giving them a pat on the back and sending them on their way with $200. And before they left, they made sure to tell these girls that they would pay them another $200 for each girl that they brought to Jeffrey for a massage. 
He was a sick pervert with a penchant for, for young girls. And he lent them out to his friends like they were property. And these people were high power. They're usually politicians, royalty, some other powerful person. He knew a lot of famous people. And besides his private island, he had homes in New Mexico, New York City, Paris, and Palm Beach. And he made sure that wherever he was in the world, he had access to girls for his sick, perverted, illegal sex games. In the mid-90s, there was a young woman named Maria Farmer. And she had just finished grad school at the New York Academy of Arts. And at graduation, they would have this art show. And Maria decided that she was going to enter, enter a triptych, which is a series of three paintings. And hers was an Alice in Wonderland series. And she did really well that night. She sold one of her paintings for 14000 and the other two for 12000 apiece. Eileen Guggenheim was the dean of students. And after Maria had sold these paintings, she pulled... Maria aside, and she told her that she would be selling them to a couple who were dear friends of hers. That's the night that Maria met Jeffrey Epstein and Elaine Maxwell, and she was forced to sell it at a discount for $6,000, to which Jeffrey said, don't worry, we'll make it worth your while. Eileen's attorney says that Maria's statement and her court testimony were inconsistent with each other and that she negotiated the sale of her painting with Epstein herself because he offered to help her with her career, so who knows what happened there. But a couple of months later, Maria got a call from Jeffrey. He had just acquired a mansion, and he wanted her to manage the door. It had just the comings and goings of people, visitors, decorators, packages, so Maria took him up on his offer, and while she worked for him, he asked her about her siblings, and he took a special interest in her sister Annie. And it was very smart. She wanted to go to an Ivy League school, and she was working towards that. And so Jeffrey offered to pay for her to travel internationally to build up her resume to help her get into a more competitive school. And so they're like, oh my gosh, so generous of you, right? Before she embarked on this trip, he recommended that she come out to meet him and Elaine at his ranch in New Mexico. And she thought that this was like a trip that a lot of people would be at. She would just be one of many students or people or kids or whatever. But when she got there, it was just her. And she's like, oh, okay. So she's there already. What's she going to do? So they give her the grand tour of this amazing property. And Elaine started the, the massage talk. She asked Annie if she had ever had a professional massage before. And Annie's like, no, I, I haven't. Why are you asking me this? And she's like, well, I'm going to give you one. And she made it seem like she was so lucky to be getting this massage. So she goes into this massage and started out normal. And then it turned really inappropriate. It was Elaine giving her the massage. But then it turned really inappropriate and Elaine was groping her and Annie knew that Jeffrey was watching. But she says the worst part of her stay was the next morning when he came into her bedroom and said that he wanted to cuddle. So he crawled into bed with her and he's touching her and Annie's just laying there. I think she's checked out of her mind, just staring up at the ceiling, looking for an excuse, any excuse to get out of that situation. So she told him, hey, I need to go to the bathroom. And she got up and left the room. And that was that for the time being. And she just tried to put it out of her mind. She didn't tell her friends or family and just kind of swept it under the rug. And she went and traveled. She went to Thailand and Vietnam. Meanwhile, they asked Maria, her sister, to go do an artist in residency at Jeffrey's 26,000. Or no, I think it was Les Wexner's. I'm actually not sure on that. This 26,000 square foot New Albany, Ohio home. It's in Ohio, but it's gorgeous if you've seen pictures or videos of it. And it was under the guise that they wanted to help her with her career. So she's there. And one night, Elaine walked into her room and she's like, Jeffrey would like his feet rubbed. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? So Maria's like, this, that's really inappropriate. How weird. But she also was like, well, I don't, I don't want them to think that I'm ungrateful and I'm glad for this opportunity to be here. And so she did it. She went to his room and she's rubbing his nasty old man feet. And at some point he asked her to come sit next to him. <laughs> so she's like, 
oh, okay. So she gets up there. And then Yelaine sat on the other side of her. So she's like sandwiched in between them. And both of them started groping her chest. So Maria got out of there. She ran out of there and went back to her room. And she's like, what the heck is happening? She put a piece of furniture up against her door and just barricaded herself in there until they were gone. The next morning, she knew they were gone. She went to check her studio. She went into her art studio. And she realized that the photographs that she used, they were, she had these photographs of her sisters and she used them as a reference for her paintings. And, and the series she was working on was about puberty, I think, like coming of age paintings. And so she used these pictures of her sisters and I don't know if they're nude or what. They were not sexual. It was just like, the, you know, nude art, I guess. And they were gone. Annie and Maria's youngest sister at the time was only 12 in those photos. And so she's like, oh my gosh, did he take these photos? How gross was he doing with them? So she calls Annie and that's when she realized that he had crossed the line with Annie too in New Mexico. And Maria's not messing around. She's not shying away from how she's feeling and how gross and disgusting and weird this is. So she talked to Jeffrey about what had happened the night before the feet thing. And he tried to play it off. Like it was fun. It was a great time. But then he realized that she's a strong girl and she's not going to cower. And she told him what's up. And he tried to buy her silence. He's like, whatever you want, how much money do you want? But she just hung up on him. When she got back to New York from Ohio, she told NYPD and they're like, this is our out, out of our jurisdiction. We can't do anything. So you need to go talk to the FBI. And so she calls the FBI and she specifically reported Jeffrey and Elaine gave names. And it seemed like they believed her. Seemed like they would take care of it. But she never heard back from them. Once Jeffrey and Elaine found out that Maria had reported them to the FBI, they started to threaten her. Elaine told her that they were well-connected socially and that she was screwed. She knew, knew where she liked to run and that it wouldn't be a safe place for her anymore. Just absolutely threatening her. Annie and Maria went ahead and made contact with a journalist named Vicky. Vicky worked for Vanity Fair. And in doing her job, you know, she got the story from the girls. And then she had to go and get Jeffrey Epstein's comments on their side of the story. And of course, he came back with his own story and he was like, oh, they're just mad because they're infatuated with me and they're making stuff up. On top of that, he also threatened Vicky. He said that if he didn't like the piece that she came out with, it would be bad for her and her family. She was pregnant with twins at the time. And he said, where are you going to give birth? I know all the hospitals. I know all the doctors. Just, just tons of threats. After that conversation, Graydon Carter, who was the Vanity Fair editor-in-chief at the time, found a severed cat head in his garden and a bullet on his doorstep. So they're freaked out, and Vicky's editor told her that both Annie and Maria were just being taken out of the story. They weren't going to report on that at all. And so when the article came out, it, had, it said nothing about his misdeeds, if you want to call them that. It, it was just like, hey, Jeffrey Epstein, check this guy out. Nothing bad about what he'd done because they were scared. And sadly, what nobody knew at the time was that what he had done to the farmer girls was just the tip of the iceberg. It's no secret that Jeffrey Epstein was filthy rich. He had a $20 million property in Palm Beach, Florida on Billionaire's Row. It was a mile from Donald Trump. He had, I mentioned it, a sprawling ranch in New Mexico, one of the largest townhouses in New York City, this huge apartment in Paris, a private island in the Caribbean, two airplanes, a helicopter, had everything he could ever want. And he went to Trump's place often. And Trump once said about Jeffrey Epstein, quote, I've known Jeff for 15 years. Terrific guy. He likes beautiful women as much as I do, and many of them are on the younger side. End quote. Ew. The Palm Beach... Police first encountered Jeffrey in the early 2000s when he came into the station wanting to make a donation for some police equipment, costing around $100,000, $100, which is pocket change for him. 
And they didn't think much other than he was just this private rich guy doing rich people stuff. And Palm Beach is obviously very nice. It's a small town. And so people, people talk, they know what's up, they know what's going on. And a couple years later, after he had gone into the police station to say, hey, I want to donate, uh, they got a call from some of his neighbors that there were a bunch of young women coming in and out of his house. And so this was cause for suspicion. So the police went over to check it out. And everybody that they talked to were all adults. And they said that they were just doing some office work for him. And so they're like, okay, nobody's breaking any laws here. And that was that. But a year or two later, things changed. Police got another call. And this time it was way more disturbing. It was this woman who told her that, who told them that her stepdaughter had $300 cash on her. And she was only 14. So she's like, where did you get this money? She's pushing you for info about it. So she learned that her and some other girls were making money by going over to some old guy's house to give him a massage. And so that's shady, right? They hear this and they're like, oh boy. So they asked this 14 year old girl to come in for an interview down at the station and she told them, kind of gave them the rundown and from her description and where the house was located, they made the connection that it was Jeffrey Epstein. And so from there, they launched an investigation and a, a detective named, named Detective Ricari began interviewing these young girls who had been to Jeffrey's house. There was a whole bunch of them and they all had the same story. They went to his house to give him a massage and they ended up being sexually assaulted. And so they're like, oh boy, oh boy. And nobody wanted to cooperate or be a part of this investigation because they were afraid of Jeffrey. He was very powerful. He was full of threats. He was rich. It's just, it's hard to go up against people like that. But seven months into the investigation, they had a pretty solid case. So they were able to obtain a search warrant. So they go into his house in Palm Beach and upstairs near his disgusting massage room, they found pictures of young naked girls, like it was art, framed and hanging on the wall. Just tons of nude pictures and nude art. I feel like there's a big difference there, like between child porn and grown-ups painted naked like rose on titanic i don't know the computers and surveillance in his house had already been taken because jeffrey had been tipped off that he was under investigation but they're able to still find some damning evidence they found these memo pads full of victims info and mess different messages long story short in the end alex acosta who's U.S. attorney at the time, made a plea deal for 18 months prison time instead of 15 years, which is still incredibly low for something like this. 18 months. Are you kidding me? And all of his co-conspirators were granted immunity. Are you freaking kidding me, Alex Acosta? You, he has girls. He has daughters. What? Victims are allowed to voice their opinion before a resolution is made, but their voices were completely snuffed out and they had no idea that any of this was even going on until it was all over and the media was talking about his plea deal. It, the whole thing was just very sneaky and secretive. And on top of that, while he was in jail, he got special treatment. He was, giving, he was given work release six days a week, 12 hours a day. And, and he only served 13 months and was let out on probation which he violated constantly. And when he got out, he had a party. And do you think his crime stopped? No, of course not. And so this led to a whole slew of new victims. Virginia Roberts was a victim of abuse growing up, and she ran away from home and lived on the streets. She had a very rough childhood. And when she was 16, she got a job at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. And I, I just have to include this side Side note about Mar-a-Lago. It was owned by another family before Trump. And back then, he offered them $15 million for it, and they declined. And so his petty orange ASS, I don't want to swear, but he, he bought the land between Mar-a-Lago and the ocean. 
And then he threatened that he was going to build a home on that property so that it would block their beach view. And so the threat caused interest in the property to decline. And that's when he snatched it up for $7 million in 1985. What a, what a douche. I'm not going to tell you my opinion on Donald Trump. I don't talk about any of that stuff here or on social media. Doesn't matter if you like him or not. That was a douche move. You have to admit. So back to Virginia. At that time, when she was a teenager, she wanted to become a massage therapist. So imagine how serendipitous it must have felt when this classy English lady named Elaine Maxwell approached Virginia while she was working, offering her a job as Jeffrey Epstein's personal massage therapist. She couldn't believe her luck. This rich guy, she was going to be... She was going to be this very rich, powerful guy's massage therapist. Okay, perfect. Yes. No question about it. Yes. And so she went to Jeffrey's house and she was led up to the massage room with Elaine and she found him lying on his stomach naked on the massage table. And so she and Elaine were massaging him and they started on his gross old man feet with thick yellow curly toenails probably And as they massaged him, they started asking Virginia about her life. And she's like, man, what nice people. She felt like she could open up to them. First nice people in her life, probably. And then suddenly Jeffrey turns over and they both asked Virginia to take off her clothes. And Elaine started taking hers off. So Virginia is like, she's 16. She's going to do, she's doing what the adults are telling her to do. She was so scared. She... She didn't know what would happen if she said no. And so she was just kind of in that, in this rock and hard, in between this rock and hard place. And so she's like, okay. And from there, they both sexually abused her before saying, hey, the interview went great. You are hired. You're going to come back tomorrow. And this poor girl had no idea what to do. So she came back tomorrow. And they hyped her up by saying that they were going to pave the way to success for her. They were going to get her an education and introduce her to more important people and that she would be a real massage therapist one day. And so she just kept going back. She got sucked into this really weird life. She describes their relationship as this weird, perverted family dynamic. They would watch movies together. They would swim, hike, just all normal activities that you do with your friends or family But behind closed doors, she was being sexually abused, like she was their slave. And then they started to traffic her. They lent, quote unquote, lent her out to their powerful friends. And because Jeffrey had so much power, Virginia felt stuck. She wasn't even an adult. She was a kid. What is she going to do? Virginia had been trafficked by Jeffrey 30 times before she was even 18. And one of the people that she was trafficked to was Prince Andrew. Michelle Licata was another victim. She was a good kid growing up. She had a lot of friends. She was a good student. And when she was 16 years old, she was sitting in class and her friend passed her a note asking if she wanted to make some money massaging old guys. She said, if you give him a massage for 45 minutes, you'll get 200 bucks. And she's like, wow, that's, that's great. That's easy money. So she went. And of course, what started as a normal massage turned into Michelle being sexually assaulted. And this obviously followed her throughout the rest of her childhood into adulthood and still affects her to this day. She says that she was something totally different before her encounter with Jeffrey Epstein. There, there's a before Michelle and an after Michelle. And she describes herself as this blossoming flower when she was a kid growing up. And he had plucked the flower by the roots, stomped on it, and smashed it. She just, she felt so dirty and so used. And you can't just let go of something like that. Shauna Rivera, another victim. She lived in West Palm Beach, which is basically the opposite of Palm Beach. It's not a wealthy neighborhood by any means. It's pretty run down. It's not nice. From what I understand, I've never been there. So if you live in West Palm Beach and I'm I'm doing you wrong, let me know. But that's what I gathered. And Shauna, unfortunately, didn't have a good childhood either. Her mom was a heavy drug user, and her dad had gone to prison when she was only three years old. And when she was 10, her dad got out of prison, and he started dating this lady who had some kids who were seriously abused 
And this is so sad. When Shauna was 12, her dad and his girlfriend beat her eight-year-old son to death in front of Shauna. And so after that, she ran away from home and she lived in shelter homes and her grandma was finally able to get custody of her. And I, I couldn't find information on how her life was with her grandma. But when she was 14, she met Jeffrey Epstein. And same thing as these other girls. She went with her friend to his house and they walked into his massage room and they found him lying naked on the massage table and they were instructed to take their clothes off before they started to massage him. So that's what they do. And after a few minutes, her friend left her alone with him. She's left and she's like, where are you going? And she, so she's stuck. She doesn't want to walk out, leave. I don't know. I, I, you can imagine what she felt like. And of course she became another victim of his sexual abuse. And she, I mean, gosh, 14, she was 14. She was a kid. She was so young. She was confused. Her mind didn't know how to process what had just happened to her, but she knew that she was making money and she was just kind of doing what the adult slash her boss told her to do. And so she ended up going back for like three or four years Another girl, Haley Robson, she was 16 when she met Jeffrey. Her dad was a police officer, which kind of blows your mind that this was going on. And her dad, a police officer, didn't know it. And her mom was in banking. And she also grew up in West Palm Beach. And I think Haley had a pretty normal childhood. But the previous summer, when she was about 15, 14 or 15, she had been raped. And so she started to cope with drugs and alcohol. And it just led her down this really dark path. She was introduced to Jeffrey the same way a lot of the other girls were by a friend at school. And she wanted to get out of West Palm. So she thought that this would be the way to do it. So her friend took her to his house and it went down the same way it did with every other girl who stepped through those doors. But she wanted to make money. She wanted to leave West Palm. She was just in a dark place. And so she ended up recruiting 24 underage girls over the course of two years which I know now she, she really regrets and has to live with the guilt. In 2002, Courtney Wilde was 14. It was the summer before high school, and she was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. And Courtney was doing great. She was the captain of the cheerleading squad. She was a straight-A student. She was in band. But the summer before high school, things in her personal life started to fall apart. Her mom was really sick. And she had an addiction and she just wasn't really able to care for Courtney. And so Courtney was just kind of living at friends' houses during this time. And she was lured into Jeffrey's weird little massage room with the promise of easy money. And it all happened so quickly that Courtney was left just trying to process what had happened. His manipulation, he was very, I think he was very charming. He knew what to say. And his manipulation kept Courtney going back for three or four years and during this time, she brought 40 to 60 girls. And it was because she felt like he was her lifeline just to survive. And let me, before I start talking about this next girl, let me just say this isn't only about underage girls. That's a large piece of it. But it's also about consent. Some of these girls were technically adults, but there was no consent and so Sarah Ransom had just turned 22 in 2006, and she went to New York for two, two weeks just to visit, and while she was there, she went to a club called Quo, and she met this girl, Natalia, and they just became fast friends. They really got along, and Natalia told Sarah about this guy she knew who could make all her dreams come true. She told him, she told her that Jeffrey was charming and caring and charismatic. Natalia called her and told her, that Jeffrey liked her and wanted to help pay for her education. So he invited Sarah and Natalia to his island on a private jet. And while on the plane, Jeffrey started having sex with some girl in front of everyone. And everyone just pretended to be asleep. They acted like it wasn't happening. And Sarah, of course, was so freaked out by this. And when they got to the island, Natalia told Sarah that Jeffrey wanted to see her in his massage room. And so she went in and he raped her. And after being raped three times in one day on the island, Sarah tried to escape. 
But before she could attempt this, Jeffrey found her and she realized that there were cameras all over the island and Sarah was being watched 24-7. But again, Sarah felt like he was her lifeline. He was taking care of her financially. He put her in an apartment. He gave her money for food. He paid for her education. And so she felt stuck. And there was Shante Davies who met him when she was 21 and she worked as Jeffrey's professional masseuse. She went to the island with him and and his people, his assistants and whatever else. And Sarah Kellen, who was one of his assistants, came knocking on, on her door that night to tell her that Jeffrey was ready for his massage. And so she went in and she started the massage like she always did. But then he turned over, he grabbed her, threw her on the bed and held her down by force by holding her wrists together and he raped her and when he finally got off of her and he walked off to get in the shower she ran back to her villa and she just cried herself to sleep because now she's stuck on this island and she didn't really know what to do so she just pretended like it didn't happen that same year in 2002 jeffrey's office asked her if she wanted to go to africa as a personal assistant for this the aids organization that bill clinton has started and she was like oh gosh this is a great opportunity, but oh my gosh, what if I get raped again? This is awful, but I also want to go. And so she just swept it under the rug. She was kind of used to sweeping things under the rug because she had been through a lot of tragedy and abuse as a kid. And so she was kind of conditioned to, to do that, to just pretend like things didn't happen. And so she thought, okay, if I don't talk about it, I can just pretend it didn't happen and I can go to Africa. So she flew from L.A. to New York, and she boarded his private plane. And while they're waiting to take off, the rest of their guests came on. There was Chris Tucker. There was Bill Clinton, Kevin Spacey. And the trip ended up being fine. He didn't touch her. There was no abuse. So Shantae thought that maybe that was a one-off, and she wouldn't have to worry about it again. But as soon as they got back to the States, the abuse started up again. There was one day that Jeffrey and Elaine flew to L.A., and they wanted to meet with Shantae for lunch. She said, nice lunch. And she brought her younger sister with her because it never occurred to her that he was abusing other people. Otherwise, I don't think she would have introduced her sister to him. And during that lunch, they decided that they were going to send her sister to Spain to live out her dreams as a translator. And guess how that went? When she got back from Spain, I think she was there for two years, She had an eating disorder. She was scary thin because she had been through some trauma that Jeffrey inflicted on her. And Shantae had no idea about it until nearly two years later. Word's getting out that he's trash. Everyone knew what he had done, yet people continued to associate with him. He maintained a good reputation because he had money. And money freaking talks. Because he donated a lot of money like really generous amounts to universities and research centers. He, people were just willing to pretend like they didn't know. I mean, imagine living your whole life to feed your illegal perverted habit. It's like everything he did was just so he could keep his carousel of young girls coming around. So gross. People just don't take into consideration how abuse like this can affect someone. Or maybe they do and they just don't care. So Courtney Wilde, who I talked about earlier, ended up dropping out of high school. She was just trying to grapple physically and emotionally with this sexual abuse at such a young age. It was just too much for her young mind to to handle, to process. She ended up getting into this life of drugs and money and sex for a long time before she finally got out of it. It, She actually ended up going to jail at one point. And then Michelle Licata, she was depressed. She hated herself. She wanted to inflict pain on herself. And so she would cut herself just to give herself a sense of control. She started doing drugs to cope. What started with pills turned into acid, mushrooms, heroin. And then Haley Robson, I think They must have talked about her in the media, and she lost a lot of friends. She couldn't hold a job. She was being being bullied. Her life was hell for a while, and I'm sure she's still dealing with the effects. 
And then Maria and Annie Farmer tried to come forward with what happened to them back in the 90s. Remember, she they went to NYPD and then they went to the FBI and they never heard anything. And their voices were just completely snuffed out. But then in October of 2017, so what, 20 years later, Alyssa Milano tweeted, made she made that tweet to use hashtag me too to try and get word out about how severe this issue was. And it, it was viral. It went widespread. I'm sure you remember it. There were millions of people who started using this phrase and the issue caught fire again. And these victims' voices started to be heard, began to be heard. And that was the beginning of the end for Jeffrey Epstein. Shantae let Jeffrey know, Shantae Davies let Jeffrey know that she knew what he was doing to her sister. And she told him that she didn't want anything to do with him. And she, he told her, he told her that she would never get anywhere in life without him. But she's like, screw you. She hung up the phone and that's the last she ever talked to him. And then Virginia, in back in 2002, she, uh, I guess she was with him, I don't know, for a few years. But back in 2002, while they were snorkeling on his island, Elaine pulled her aside. She's like, I have to talk to you about something serious. And Virginia's like, oh boy, what now? And Elaine was like, Jeffrey and I want to have a baby, but they wanted Virginia to have the baby for them, not as a surrogate, her baby, and then sign it over to them. And Virginia's like, oh, well, I'm on this island. I can't say no. So she's like, hey, remember how you told me I'd get an education? Let's do that first. How about we just do that first? And so they're like, okay. So a couple weeks later, Jeffrey presented her with tickets to Thailand to get certified as a massage therapist. And luckily, because when she was there, she was like, okay, this is my chance to make an escape. How am I going to do this? Well, luckily, she ended up meeting a guy there named Robert. And they fell in love. And he wanted her, when they got done with their trip, he wanted her to come back to Australia with him. And they ended up getting married at, at a in a Buddhist temple and so after she got married, she was really nervous, but she knew she had to tell Jeffrey. So she called him on the phone and said, hey, I got married. I'm going on to the next chapter of my life. And he was pissed, but she was free. She hung up the phone. She was free and she was ready to bring him to justice. Little did Virginia know it was going to take a couple decades for that justice to come. And then Sarah was under Jeffrey's thumb for eight and a half years months before she finally got out better than a few years I guess psychologists were hired to do an evaluation on Jeffrey and this goes without saying but they found that he was a narcissist with no ability to feel empathy he tries to be in control at all times and whenever he feels like he's out of control that's what makes him feel unsettled the victims ended up hiring an attorney and Jeffrey hired private investigators who started surveilling the victim's attorney and his house where he lived with his family and following them, trying to intimidate him out of re representing his victims. They went as far as impersonating officers and contacting victims to try and intimidate them. But they were moving forward with this. Things were not going to go well for the bad guys. So they're finally under investigation again, because remember how back, I think it was 2008, Jeffrey did 13 months and that's it. So gross. So he, they're under investigation again and Prince Andrew denied knowing Virginia in an interview. It was so obvious that he was lying. He claims that he was at Pizza Express with his daughter the night that Virginia says they met, yet she has a picture with him from the night they met right before he sexually assaulted her. And there's a guy named, his last name's Scully, I think his first name's Stephen, but he was an employee on the island and the FBI interviewed him about Jeffrey and they asked him to look at 60 or 70 photos to identify the girls who had been on the island. And one of them was Virginia. And he remembered seeing her and Prince Andrew on the beach on the island. She was in bikini bottoms and he's grinding up on her. And then there's Alex Acosta, who tried to defend his decision to cut Jeffrey a deal, but then he ended up resigning two days later. By 2019, Jeffrey was 66 years old, and he was in Paris, and he had flown into New Jersey 
where they arrested him. And at his hearing, some of the victims were there and they were able to speak. And while during that whole thing, his attorneys were trying to convince the judge to let him out by offering up hundreds of millions. We'll give, he'll give his whole fortune if you just let him off the hook. But the judge was like, no, thank goodness. The prosecutors had even more evidence than people realized. They had found child pornography in his safe, $70,000, 48 diamonds, and a fake Austrian passport. And to them, this looked like an escape plan. Judge Berman was the judge, and he did not let him off. He was held without bail while awaiting his trial date. And as we all know, Jeffrey Epstein died in jail. Supposedly, he hung himself. Supposedly, guards were sleeping and the cameras weren't working. And this is a facility that is highly monitored in New York. And it just, that just so happened to, uh, it was the perfect storm that night. I don't know. There were a lot of people who wanted him dead. I'm sure he had a lot of damning information on a lot of people. This was an international trafficking ring. Jeffrey was just a very small, not a very small piece, but a small piece in a large network. When they did the autopsy on Jeffrey, there were fractures to the hyoid bone. And these fractures don't come from somebody just hanging. There has to be force. And there's no evidence that he jumped off the bunk or fallen off the bunk. He had a sheet around his neck, I guess, is what they think. And so how did his bone break? But also something to take into consideration is two days before his death, he moved his entire fortune, which was over $577 million, into a trust in the Virgin Islands, which made it hard for his victims to get restitution. So it was kind of like a giant screw you before he died to his victim. He just had no remorse. He was awful. Elaine Maxwell was arrested July 2nd of 2020. And she was charged with four counts related to procuring and transporting minors for illegal sex acts and two counts of perjury. On December 29th, she was found guilty. And then June 28th, 2022, she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And then in August 2022, her lawyer sued her for failing to pay $878,000 in legal fees. Sucks to suck. Do you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? Do you remember how that was a big thing everybody was talking about for a while and now nobody's talking about it? Let's talk about it. Do you think he killed himself? I want to know. Come over to my Instagram, the story of pod and talk to me. I want to hear your theories and your thoughts. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you have the best week. If you want to check out pictures and links to everything on all my stories, you can. The story of pod.com. I hope you have the best day and the best week, and I will see you next time. Love you. Bye.